Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hello, everyone. We are going to do our weekly catch up with Brandon Munro and find out what's been happening in the world of uranium. So, hello, Brandon. How are you, sir? Yeah, well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Yeah, pretty, pretty good. Now, you were just telling me before we came on air that you've uh, had a little Barbie. Temperature is nice. What, what did you have? Uh, look, it's magic. Autumn or fall, as the North Americans would say in Perth, is just lovely. And so the first thing I had was about 32-degree afternoon Celsius. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a nice long evening to relax and kick back. I think we were expecting a minimum of 23 by 6 a.m. So I'll make sure I get up and go for a run then. Thanks. Uh, so, look, heart goes out to everyone who's in cooler climates and in a lockdown because we've got this fabulous backyard here that's Beautiful. got a big six-burner gas barbie. And so I put some prawns, garlic prawns, on some of those and managed to win a few brownie points back from the family. Oh, I bet. I bet. I'm, I'm, I'm salivating already. It's, it's a balmy 16 degrees here. Um, and I think it's a little bit too early to be drinking, but you never know. You never know. Well, what, what <laughs> you a... Need, need a good run toddy. Good uh, run toddy at those temperatures, don't you? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Maybe later. <laughs> maybe later. Don't tempt me. Um, now, Brandon, what a week. What a week. Another week to say what a week in the world of uranium. A lot of news. A lot of news in the generalist press. And that's always a good sign when the generalists start taking note of what's going on. Obviously, the big hardened uranium bulls have been talking about this for three or four years, but I think people are starting to take note. Um, I guess the first thing that people want to talk about is Port Hope. It's been shut down by Cameco. What, what are the implications and what does it mean? Well, first of all, for the listeners, Port Hope is a conversion facility that Cameco operates in Ontario. Cameco is responsible for about 20% of the world's conversion capacity. And as probably everyone knows uh, by now, after listening to us last week, conversion is the process of taking yellow cake or U308 into a gas, UF6. So they're a big player. The other players um, in the Western world, it's only Orano at the moment. The other player, Convidine, have the Metropolis facility, which was shut down uh, for care and maintenance on an extended basis in November 2017. So outside of Cameco and Orano, then it's down to CNNC, the big Chinese operator, and Rosat, the Russian giant. And so it's very significant for the Western world in a sense because it highlights that there aren't many remaining op- options outside of Russian and Chinese conversion. For now, it's only four weeks. And interesting to catch some of the chemical comments in the general press. Basically, a conversion facility is a little bit like an enrichment facility. They don't happily turn on and turn off. So what Cameco needed to do was a preemptive move. They couldn't afford to have to shut it down quickly because of any of the disruptions that we're seeing, for example, at mine sites to do with COVID-19 and coronavirus. So they took a preemptive step to put it down for four weeks. They can control that. They can continue to receive shipments and do that type of thing but they're not at risk of needing to suddenly shut it down in 24 hours because of an outbreak, et cetera. 
that then begs the question, well, is it only going to be four weeks or not? And I think it's probably got a lot of similarities with Cameco's decision to shut down Cigar Lake, the world's largest uranium mine, for four weeks. In terms of the implications, it's it's difficult to say what the implications are for uranium because, you know, that's where most people listening to this chat will be most interested. If it's only four weeks, it's not such a big spacer that it's going to have any direct uh, implications on uranium. It will get into the mindset of utilities. There's no doubt it will shake them up, together with the fact that they're experiencing supply disruption in U308. Now it's conversion. Um, if there was a supply disruption in enrichment, it would have a fundamental catalytic effect on the uranium sector. But uh, I, I don't think that this is any indicator that increases the probability of, of enrichment going down. In a very small sense, it means that less uranium is going to be able to get through the funnel towards uh, UF6 that can then be made into an enrichment. If it continued for six months, that would start to become a problem for the utilities because they would have difficulty getting their material through the fuel cycle. For four weeks, I think what we'll do or see is a real testing of the amount of uh, mobile inventory of UF6. If the position is indeed as tight as I think it is, um, we will see a little bit of a lift in the UF6 price and the conversion price. If it goes on for four weeks or perhaps gets extended for another couple of weeks and we see no action in the price of either conversion or UF6, then that's probably an indicator that there's enough material still available as a UF6 that it can just infill for those four weeks. That's, that's interesting. Can, so I just ask, can I just ask at that point? So w with this, these are done um, not as contracts, because <clears throat> obviously if the price doesn't move, it's possibly because there's contracts, but how, how does the, the pricing get worked out in this space? Uh, so with conversion, it's contracted, <clears throat> but, but also there's a spot price. Right. So not that different to what you might see in uh, in uranium or, for that matter, in Richmond. Okay. And mm -hmm. the, the spot price has that short-term variability. So the conversion price at the moment, um, spot is about 22.25. And you might remember from our chat recently that uh, it was four when Convertine shut down. Yeah. So that's still a more than a 400, 500% increase. Um, and term is about 18. So that's reflective of this dynamic where there's been not enough inventory and therefore the spot price has overshot the term price. Right. But your expectation is that there will, there obviously will have a knock-on effect. Um, you know, if it's four weeks, maybe not significant, but if it goes on longer, it, it, it clearly will have an impact on the marketplace. And you'd expect the you know, pri pricing to change at that point. Um, but Cameco, so what are Cameco's options um, here? You know, in terms of uh, you know, because we talked to last week about these things are not easy to switch on or off, right? So you're saying it's it's, it's in kind of care and maintenance mode at the moment. Is that effectively what they're they're doing? Yes, for four weeks. Yeah, and there'll be some things that they can do productively during that time. Uh, so it might be that they can bring forward some maintenance. Uh, 
their their facility um, is an old facility. Uh, it's not a spring chicken by any means. Uh, it's been its operating life was extended, I think, to 2027 thereabouts. So there are some productive things that they'll be able to do while it's down, but they will be really hoping that they don't see it down for longer because particularly with these spot prices in conversion being where they are, this is a profitable little business unit. Um, before Convert, uh, Convertine was shut down or before Convertine shut Metropolis down, um, they were operating this facility at below capacity, um, about 10,000 tonnes out of a potential capacity of 12,500 tonnes. Um, but as a result of those enhanced spot prices that we've seen, they were able to dial that capacity right back up to as much as it can. So that's an indicator that this has been a tasty little uh, profitable unit for them mm. um, to recoup some of the difficulties that they're having in uranium. Right, and, and let's deal with some of the, because I've been, been you know, through the social media and so forth, and let's deal with some of these conspiracy, conspiratorial type commentary, which is this is a chess move by Kamika, yet another one, to um, force the hand uh, of utility players in the marketplace. Do you think that is the case? Or do you think this is actually no. good, sensible governance of uh, running an organisation? I just think it's sensible. I, I can't see any angle where it would benefit Cameco from a conspiratorial. Like, if you look at Cigar Lake, now I don't believe the uh, the viewpoint that Cameco saw an, an opening in this calamity to take Cigar Lake off to force prices up. But at least you can see the logic. Like, if someone wants to have that opinion, I'm not going to tell them they're a conspiratist freak. <laughs> but when it comes to Port Hope, it, you just can't see the benefit for Cameco in doing this. Um, they're losing four weeks of production when spot price conversion is very high at the moment. Um, it's profitable. And there's no end game for them to put utilities under pressure by holding back supply of conversion. It just doesn't make any sense. I just think it's a, it's either a, a sensible business, a preemptive business decision, or it's something that's been forced on them by the circumstances. I agree with you. Now, the impact of this, uh, all, all of these messages into the market. So whatever you think of uh, the decision by Cameco with regards to Port Hope, etc., there's a lot of new stories in the marketplace. So let's kind of um, deal with a few of those because what I want to end up with is a discussion around the spot price, the, the $30 barrier spot price. But, it, but before we do that, so let's talk about have you got an update on what's happening in Namibia? Because we talked about that last week. I thought that was fascinating. It was different from what the perception was in the marketplace. What do you know now? What do you now know? Yeah, so what we now know is that Rossing is closed down. So they've made the decision uh, together with the union to close it. And that's a decision that will be reviewed in a couple of weeks' time and let's just wait and see. Um, it's pretty obvious through the press that Rossing is having a difficult time with their unions at the moment. Uh, I can only speculate as to what's in the, the the strategy of the unions, but when you look from the outside in, and you know when you chat to a few buddies as I've got over there, it would appear that they've seen the Chinese come and buy Rossing off Rio, 
And it's almost like they think they've got dollar signs in their eyes. And even Namibian dollar signs, which aren't very powerful because it's pegged to the rand, but they're still dollars. They've got these things in their eyes and it's almost like they've totally misjudged the situation and they think that they can uh, hold the Chinese with their deep pockets to ransom. Um, and that's just not going to happen. So uh, every chance you'll see a combination of COVID-19 measures and a totally unrealistic union demand playing out together to see further disruptions at Rossing. Um, and uh, I think the Chinese can withstand that. I think CNNC, uh, there is a contract book that Rossing will need to deliver into, but a fair proportion of that CNNC itself. So by buying Rossing, they've got a fair bit of inbuilt flexibility there. So if it's not COVID-19, there's a good chance that union disputes will also punch a big hole in Rossing's uh, production numbers for this year. Um, what I understand from HUSAB is that they're doing the best that they can in the situation. They are continuing to try and produce as much as they can, but this is just another compounded difficulty that they're facing. And uh, they aren't at full production at the moment. And already this year, they've lost quite a lot of production. So uh, I don't think anyone's got them in their models at full nameplate capacity, but at whatever number we started the year thinking that HUSAB could achieve, I think you'll need to be trimming probably 25% off that. Okay. This, I've worked in Africa for a long time, 25 countries in Africa, and you know we've invested in them, we've done diligence in these countries, and unions are you know, a, a word was sort of, you know, sh sends shivers down my spine because it's caused us, you know, huge losses in the past and the inability to actually get transactions over the line. So post-COVID-19, do you think Namibia is going to suffer from union issues or is this just specific to Rossing? Because, as you say, dollar signs in people's eyes that don't necessarily understand how the, the money flows or what it's what it's being applied to and, and the fact that it doesn't necessarily go straight to the bottom line. Uh, yeah, it's a good question, actually. The unions in Namibia have, by and large, been very reasonable. Um, you know, when, when I first worked in Namibia, we had a unionised workforce, and so I had to deal with the branch executive committee there and... Um, interestingly enough, if I can tell a war story for a moment, the biggest dispute I ever had with the union um, was not over pays and conditions. It was because they wanted to basically inflict on all of their workers a payday loan scheme. And I refused. I said, it's not in the best interest of my employees to uh, burden these people with debt that they can't necessarily repay, particularly for a company that's not very stable like a mining exploration company and we ended up you know having a proper tiff about it which all got resolved perfectly well after a little bit of intervention where it needed to be so the unions are not militant in namibia they can be a little bit unsophisticated at times um but they if you've got a picture of south african unions in your mind and you almost need to go to the polar opposite of that to imagine Namibian unions. As I say, they're pretty reasonable. They're happy to sit down. You've got these small towns where lots of people know each other anyway. And 
uh, this idea of people marching in the streets, uh, the, the scenes that we saw in the platinum mines of South Africa, mm. none of that stuff happens in Namibia. Everyone's pretty chilled and pretty mellow in Namibia. Um, in this case, I think they've just called it wrong. But what they are seeing is they're seeing their brethren get hit pretty hard right now, which will uh, always cause a deep breath. So the Scorpion Zinc Mine, which is a Vedanta-owned zinc mine in the south of Namibia, um, they've just announced that they're closing. The, the Namib Zinc and Lead Mine, uh, which is down the road from our project near Swakopmund, um, they've just announced or they've just sent um, advice out to the union that they're going to have to close. And as it turns out, it seems that COVID-19 was the the very last straw for an operation that had been struggling already. So they all, the unions become very reasonable at times like these, but they seem to have got themselves into a bit of a corner in Rossing, and they've got a, a very fierce adversary in the new MD who's an extremely capable um, uh, Namibian who's their counterpart there. Okay, interesting, interesting. And, and look, I, I guess the Namibian government wants to you know, get back to normality as soon as possible because mining is a very important industry for them uh, and obviously for, for the you know, people on the ground who are employees and all of the kind of derivatives uh, of. Um, so do, do keep us up to date with what is going on there, but it, but it seems like they, like the rest of the world, are having to make pretty tough decisions at the moment and, and I'm particularly interested to see what um, happens with Rossing. Um, the I guess the, the the thing I do want to then get on to is you know some of the other news in, in the world. So I think Australia seems to be, as you said, I don't think much has changed there from our conversation last week that that I've heard. I mean, are you aware of any any developments in Western Australia? No, not really. It just same status. We've got very few new transmissions. Just about all of them are linked to cruise ships a little bit of overseas travel. Um, the number of uh, potential community transi- transmissions are still under a dozen. So it doesn't seem to be a problem here. And uh, it seems like the mines are adapting quite well to the whole concept of not drawing fly and fly out workers from interstate. And from what I understand, South Australia is in a pretty similar situation. Hmm. Well, let's let's go on to this spot price. There's a kind of psychological barrier. I mean, people are talking about it again across social media. We're getting lots of messages and uh, communications about it. People seem particularly, you know, uh, keen to talk about this because th- when was the last time it was thirty bucks? Uh, well, I, I happen we, to we know this really well. It's been like br- <laughs> <laughs> worse. It's branded on my forehead, I tell you. Um, the last time it was 30 bucks was about a week after I came into the CEO role of Bannerman. So I signed up for, after being uh, working in copper exploration and cobalt exploration for a few years. Um, I came back into the fold in uranium and was offered the job at Bannerman to come back as a CEO. And the spot price was $33 at that point. And within about a week, it had fallen through 30. So uh, that was back in March 2016. Right. And it got quite close to $30 in uh, late 2018. And there was a real expectation that it would break $30. Um, A lot of that was driven by Cameco buying. And 
uh, and then, you know, as as most of your listeners would know, 2019 was a pretty painful year for the uranium spot price, where it uh, came all the way back down to almost $24. So what, what are people seeing? You know, what, why, why is this a psychological barrier? I mean, people across the board, not just retail investors um, talk about it, but if you look at any of the influencers in the marketplace they're talking about it, and, and, and the CEOs they're saying you know we, we think it'll get across 30 within the next three months and that's a big moment for this industry that watching but the, but the reality especially for people new to this space or looking at this space generalists who are suddenly aware of uranium I was saying well it doesn't won't make much of a difference because these guys are telling me they can't get into production unless there's you know 50 bucks a spot price so what does 30 do for people? Yeah, so on the one hand, what you're saying about it's, it doesn't make any difference, there's a lot of truth in that because it's shades of uh, unsustainable grey. So whether it's 25, 18, as it got to back at the end of 2016, uh, or 35, it doesn't make any difference to the large proportion of world uranium production that's uneconomic. And until you're well into the 40s and into the 50s, really, that uh, anything in the second, third and fourth tiers of uranium production makes no sense. So $30, $25, $35 doesn't change the long-term demand picture. However, on the other hand, there is an important barrier at $30. Uh, it is a psychological barrier, but as we see in so many different ways, uh, psychology, if exposed to a sufficient belief, becomes reality in the investment sphere. And you only need to look at gold. Gold's built partly on psychology, apart from a little bit of jewellery demand and a small amount of industrial demand. Um, and the reason why it's a barrier is, as we've just discussed, it's been a long time since uranium has pushed through $30 and it has failed to push through $30 uh, in some um, circumstances that saw a lot of dynamics behind it, particularly heavy buying by Cameco and others. Uh, And there's a number of generalist investors who have therefore attributed some level of confirmation to that $30 barrier. So when we see it go through $30, that's when we understand that this is different. It's not another false dawn, as we've seen in the uranium sector over the last few years, and therefore we're ready to get behind things. So I think it's got a very important part to play in equities uh, because of not only retail investors, but other more sophisticated investors as well, but also in the spot price itself, uh, because I would expect you'd see Good backing start to come into yellow cakes, UPCs, uh, hedge funds, and others because once they see this threshold breached, there's an expectation that it'll punch through fairly quickly to $35. Now, there are also a few more fundamental reasons. Um, in, in the context of the current uranium setup, uh, $30 is an interesting place for Cameco to be where they need to be buying pounds in the spot market to supply into their contracts. And now this is my own estimates, okay? So this isn't a fact that I can point anyone to. So there is, there's a chance I'm wrong here, but this is what I believe and, and the work that I've done on this. Um, if you look at Cameco's overall 
portfolio of long-term contracts. Um, Cameco said publicly that it's about 60% related to market and about 40% fixed price escalated. So first principle, as the spot price goes up, even if it's them buying it up because they have to fight for pounds in the spot market to give to their customers under long-term contracts, as the spot price goes up, they get 60% of that benefit because the value of that part of their portfolio increases with every dollar that the spot price goes up. However, you need to understand that their portfolio will have collars and cuffs built into it. Um, and doing some of the analysis that I've done, I believe that their portfolio is collared in general at about $30. Um, and because of that collar, they only start to really get a proper lift in that $60, uh, that 60% of their portfolio as it pushes towards 35. So Cameco's got quite an incentive to be in there fighting as the market starts to push through 30. Um, because if my calculations are correct, um, whether they are buying at 30 or buying at 33 um, doesn't make an awful lot of difference to their profitability. If they're buying at 25, well, at least they can make $5 because they're going to be selling into a contract portfolio that's collared at about $30. It's only when they push through 35 and they've moved through the, the effect on that portfolio of their collars that every dollar that they, every dollar that the spot price goes up adds 60 cents to their contract portfolio. Interesting. That is that's fascinating, and some some interesting work. Um, I'm just wondering what. So that's that's the that's the the insider market view in terms of you know what what Cameco and uh, the like think. For generalist funds looking in from outside, wondering what on earth is going on, because you know it's it, it's been hard to for people in the know to understand. So let alone when you you guys walk into generalist funds and try and explain the situation in as 10 minutes of your you know 30 minute or 40 minute pitch um it's it, it's hard to fathom um so you know do, do you do you do you think what's the psychological number for a generalist fund you know before they'd start paying attention and go well can this company that we are we're being asked to invest into can this company make money what's the, what's the number and you they're going to be looking at much much higher numbers so specialists have a psychological barrier generalists are going to have another one aren't they it depends what they're investing for if they're investing to buy a future production stream well then the answer is yes they're, they're going to have to wait until they're paying a much higher price for a company that's able to write contracts at 60 70 80 dollars because any of the non-producers of any scale and volume that can come into the market in the next few years, they're the, they're the size of contracts they're going to have to be writing. Um, now, if it's a fund that's got a bit more flexibility and it can invest for market movements, well, then $30 would have to be the ideal uh, level at which to come in. Because the retailers, as you've picked up and as you read about on Twitter and as you hear uh, from many 
commentators and uranium CEOs, the retail investors are kind of plugged in at 30. So um, amongst the smaller names in uranium, well, when I say the smaller names, I mean really anyone except Cameco and Kazatomprom, uh, they'll get a big lift as uranium goes through 30. But, but let me come back to your question for a moment because that's not actually the biggest problem for uranium, uh, for funds looking at uranium. And, and this is really good for retail or high net worth or family offices to understand because this presents an incredible opportunity within an incredible opportunity within a contrarian opportunity um, within a sort of once in a century calamity opportunity. And that is this, the funds that I'm speaking to, and I'm talking about the ones who are absolutely sold on the uranium thematic at the moment. And, and, you know, I'm quoting experienced fund managers when I say that they're telling me undoubtedly it's the best risk return setup that they've seen in their investing career. Their problem is that there's not enough liquidity. They're held back from coming into most of these stocks because there just simply isn't enough liquidity in the stocks yep. to be able to tick their, their mandates. And so for a high net worth or a family office or even a retail investor, what a fantastic opportunity to be buying up stocks that you know are going to have a serious amount of lift under their wings, not once the stock's gone up 20 or 30%, but once the stock's doubled, tripled, gone 5x, only then will you have these uh, liquidity constraints fall by the wayside and these investors, these big funds, be able to come through. And it's still going to have a, a, an impressive risk return. And by then, it'll be the flavour of the month and they'll, they'll have to come in like what we saw in metallurgical coal in 2017 or rare earths or any of those other fundamentals. They'll have to fight their way onto the market. And for retail investors coming in now, that'll be, if it's a good stock, that'll be 5x from here. I could not agree more. That's why we've been buying. Um, I, your, your point's well made about funds. Obviously, they, they have you know various criteria by which the, the fund can or cannot invest. And liquidity's huge amongst them because they need to be able to trade in and out with big numbers. It's not just a case of you know 10,000 hairs. They've got to be tra- trade in blocks of a million or so. Um, and that's I think this is a problem, obviously, across the junior market space. But it's... Uh, Obviously, keenly felt down down here with uh, uranium too, um, and, and we will come back to that. Come back to that point um, on another day. But I, I'm, I'm very conscious I'm I'm uh, easing into your time. So I just want one one last question. You and, and sorry to throw this at you. I haven't, I haven't prepared you at all for this. Is we saw an announcement from Bannerman with regards to your Tango membrane study, etc. You know, and I, I noticed a few. Uh, quite nice points in there. I reminded myself you, you know, you're sitting on 4.6 million of cash, and 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 the board and management have agreed to take a pay cut. So, all of the the right things to be announcing to the market. So, you know, I, I applaud you for that. Congratulate you. There, there are many who don't um, think about these things. Um, so, so that's good. But I want to talk to you about something specific, which was I was looking uh, as a result of looking at that announcement. Uh, Share price and equities, and I appreciate this is you know it's a, uh, maybe a bit, but you know maybe you don't feel you can comment uh, too much on this one, so maybe we will just keep it uh, on Bannerman because I think it's quite reflective of what has happened in the uranium equities over the past couple of months, which is you know we've seen sort of a general uh, 
downwards, general, slight uh, downward trend in 2019 because there wasn't a lot of trading. Um, obviously, a big hit about a month ago, and then a very strong rebound. I mean, what are what are your what, what do you hope what are your hopes for with Bannerman, or what are you seeing in terms of the buying, and what are the messages you're you're getting from shareholders um, with regards to your share price and and what it is that you're trying to do during this period? So it's interesting, and I can't give you all of those answers because we we haven't done our we haven't got the results from our latest register analysis Mm -hmm. so i'm not exactly sure where the buying's coming from i'm aware of a few key supporters who've been filling their clients boots as we came under a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. Um, what i think we're seeing and this is certainly what i hope we're seeing is the investors who bought at the bottom and our share price touched one and a half cents, uh, which is not only a historical low for us, uh, but 50% of the lowest price that I've raised at since I've been in the in the company. And that raising was done in November 2016 when the uranium price was $18 a pound. So dramatically low prices. But it seems like the absorption at that level weren't traders. Uh, they uh, they weren't speculators. They were existing holders um, seeing a great opportunity to average down. And whenever you have a situation like this, it either take you know it either takes a very um, a, a great degree of courage and conviction to try and catch that falling knife, or it takes someone who's already committed to the stock and they figure they've got nothing to lose by averaging down. Yeah. My expectation is that's been the bulk of the buying at this trough. And I think that's part of the reason why we've sprung back quite well. So now we we closed before Easter at 3.8 cents. Um, And I'm hoping that the fact that the stock has been absorbed by existing large holders, apart from just continuing to improve our register, it also means that I'm not going to be having that stock coming back out at me as people say, gee, that's a 40% return. I'm not going to turn that down in this kind of market. I'm going to pocket that and move on. Um, And if that is the case, then we should be really springy coming out of this given the the exceptional leverage credentials that we've got and the fact that we've got two years plus of runway, so we're not going to become raised. We're not going to have any of that hanging over our heads. Um, What I've seen in, um, in the comments from other CEOs, I should say, is quite a lot of concern from companies that do need to raise. Now, probably that concern's dissipated with the events that we've had in the last week or so, but you can never be too sure what the overall macro environment is going to do for a market remaining open and where you can access money and so on. Um, so for us, we're just very, very lucky that we're our registered about 25% specialist uranium funds. And for them, when they see a Bannerman share price under pressure like it has been in the last few weeks, uh, really the only question is uh, how much liquidity have they got to redeploy and uh, who are the other bargains in the sector and what's the proportional spend between those ones. Okay. Now, that's interesting. I mean, we've been obviously looking at, well, we, we look at about 12 or so of the companies and it's just been 
it, it just very similar patterns of uh, at the moment, which I guess is reflective of you know what's been going on in the market and um, you know the reactions from each of those companies. There hasn't been too much variance, but I, you know I, I agree with you. I think now is the time uh, for people. Like you know, we we had a conversation with someone about you know defining when the bottom of the market truly is the bottom of the market, and I'm. I think with uranium, it's it doesn't matter if we haven't hit rock bottom. Uh, we're pretty close to it, have been for a while. I think there was an opportunity in the last couple of weeks, which we took advantage of. And I think that um, even now, uh, the, the prices are prices are good, and people should be looking at it. But um, again, more of that another day. And you must come back on and tell us about what you are doing at Bannum because I, I know the membrane study is one of a few things which you're. You're up to, and I, I appreciate it's um, unusual times at the moment. But let's get that date in the diary. Yeah, love to. Always happy to talk about Bannerman. We we always seem to get on to macro, but I, I I'm sure that uh, that's what your listeners are here for and subscribing for. So I'm more than happy to do that as well. Thank you, thank you. We, yeah, you're one of the uh, more elo- eloquent talkers in the market that we've identified. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are others, but you, you, you're the best. You're the best. Well, um, Brandon, I'm going to let you get back to your family, and I, I assume the barbecue is over, and and there's wine to be drunk. Uh, that's a fairly reasonable assumption. My my wife's been making uh, homemade ice cream as well, so that's been setting in the freezer. And just before she put it in the freezer and it finished spinning around, I snuck a tot of whiskey into it. So I'm very much looking forward <laughs> to seeing, A, if the kids manage to pick it, and B, uh, how it comes out. Well, that sounds all very idyllic. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks, Matt. Speak next week. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.